Welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Gorsuch nomination. Okay, Richard, you and I have – we've talked before on the program about Neil Gorsuch's nomination to fill this spot on the Supreme Court that was previously held by Justice Scalia. And you've indicated when we talked before that you're favorably inclined towards this choice. Uh, this is the first time, however, that we've talked since Judge Gorsuch has been on the Hill answering questions during his confirmation hearing. So let me just start with you there. What further insights did we get into what kind of Supreme Court Justice Gorsuch would be from these hearings? What did we learn? Well, it's a very interesting thing. On the one hand, he's duty-bound to play rope-a-dope in the sense that he can't commit himself on future cases of which he has a part. And he did that with such gusto and enthusiasm that some people actually believe that he meant what he said when he said he doesn't like to prejudge any particular issue. Uh, there were cases where he had to defend earlier decisions, where he did so, I think, with a great deal of a plum. And then there was this just overwhelming sense of judicial modesty which came through, in which this is a guy who listens before he talks, who doesn't make up his mind prematurely, and actually tries to hear the other side, not only because he uh, thinks it's fair to them, but because he thinks it's essential to himself to learn this. So in terms of the actual hearing, anybody who came away from it would know what those of us who've known Gorsuch for years have always said, that he's a thoroughly admirable nominee and that uh, you could not have asked for a better person to fill this particular seat in terms of temperament and in terms of intellect. So in that sense, I think we've learned only what we've already known. Unfortunately, what we've learned is that there's no end of pettiness on the part of people like Charles Schumer or willing to make mountains out of molehills and to sort of declaim falsely in many cases uh, that Gorsuch is exactly what he is not. That is, a shill for organized management, big business, and so forth, whereas in fact the opposite truth is true. It's um, Schumer who is the shill. He is the one who essentially uses litmus tests, are you for labor, are you for the environment, or whatever. And, and what it does is it brings him to a massive degree of discredit. And so I think, in fact, what's going to happen in this particular case is that Gorsuch will get through and that Schumer has now left himself with a series of bad options. He could capitulate on the filibuster, which in my judgment he ought to do, or he could try to ground it down. But either way, uh, anybody who is in that neutral middle who gives a loose presumption in favor of the president will have been favorably impressed by Gorsuch. I don't think there's anybody who's become more negative about him. So I think the nomination is now more secure uh, than it had been before the hearings took place. You mentioned the rope-a-dope game that they have to play. Supreme Court confirmation hearings are sort of famously frustrating for senators and for just some of the public that's uninitiated to the process because the nominees can't say that much. They're sort of loath to talk about things that might come before the court, and because their mandate is to deal with the narrow realities of the cases that come before them, they tend to talk in very general terms in these settings. With that in mind, if you're a U.S. senator – What's a profitable line of inquiry here? Where, where can you actually learn something that's valuable in this process? You know, it's very, very hard, but essentially what you probably can do 
is to ask the judge to explain his previous opinions or his previous extrajudicial writings and explains why he did it. So, you know, there's this case having to deal with the question of whether or not a person forfeits his workman's compensation benefits when contrary to his employer's orders, he abandons his position and goes somewhere else. And I think Gorsuch was right on the technical part on the statute. And you could say, well, how come he didn't go with the majority, given the fact that the hard strings tug in the opposite direction? And what he said, I think, actually was quite telling. He says, if you're going to be a good judge, you have to understand that there are lots of times where you'd like to do justice, quote unquote, by X, but the law requires you to go in the opposite direction. And your job is not to dispense sympathy. Your job is to try to make sure that the cases are consistent with the larger fabric of the law. The uh, illustration I would ask him about is, now tell me, what do you think about Captain Veer and Billy Budd? Uh, I don't know if you remember that, but Billy Budd was this boyish-looking seaman who struck a man named Claggett and killed him. And then the question was whether or not in his course martial he should be spared death. And Captain Veer, that's the name of Captain Truth, modeled on, by the way, on Justice Shore of the uh, of the um, of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. What he does is he has all the arguments in favor of mercy, but it turns out that when it comes to the law, every single one of them turns out to be wrong. So he is told, but you know, the killing was unintentional, to which the answer was the mere touching of an author of an officer in hostility is sufficient to do capital punishment. So don't tell me about the fact that there was an unintended consequence. And, you know, that's the kind of guy Gorshitz turns out to be. Now, people can say that you get too rigid on some of these cases. And I think that there is always a risk of that. But one of the other things about Gorsuch, which you did learn, this is attitude towards precedent, which is it's messy, but by and large, you follow it even if you think that as a matter of first principle, it's wrong. Justice Scalia famously called himself a faint-hearted originalist, and that meant that he was willing to make peace with large numbers of developments that had happened later on in the constitutional cycle after the original 1787 compact. And Scalia was willing to live more or less with the 1937 New Deal settlement, which gave the federal government vastly expanded power. And now the question comes up, what about Roe v. Wade? And I think the answer that you learn from Gorsuch is whatever his personal views on this particular subject, it's going to take a lot more than the belief that he's cases wrongly decided for him to want to overrule a precedent. So if I were a Democrat, I would be, I think, relatively relieved about this. He's not going to go out of his way to make sure that you get additional powers. But on the other hand, he's a justice who's much more inclined to live with the status quo than perhaps even Justice Scalia. And that, from a Democratic point of view, should be is a good thing. And he's also, I think, a little bit more willing to examine executive power, which in an age of Trump is something that the Democrats ought to welcome. The signals are mixed at the moment, but there are some signs, as you mentioned earlier, that Democrats are, may attempt to filibuster this nomination. And as day follows night, it is universally anticipated that at that point, Senate Republicans would just eliminate the filibuster for Supreme Court nominees in the same way that Senate Democrats did under President Obama for nominees to lower federal courts. If that happens, Richard, is it a loss for the republic? Is there any inherent value in that right to filibuster a Supreme Court nominee? 
Well, these filibuster used to be used for perfectly commendable purposes. The sort of implicit text was that you filibustered when there was bipartisan opposition to somebody uh, because there was some serious question of moral turpitude. And the filibuster, I think, was invoked dealing with Abe Fortas because of his various irregularities. And not only did he not become Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, he eventually was forced to resign his seat. And I think a filibuster which is designed to deal with core matters of competence is, in fact, a welcome design. Uh, but this case is so far removed from anything like that that what you're doing is you're hearing the filibuster now being invoked for what I regard as sort of petty and insubstantial reason. Essentially, we're playing catch-up because of Merrill Garland. Garland, if I actually had to figure out where these two guys stand... Gorsuch is surely to the right of Garland, but Garland himself was not a deeply left-wing kind of judge. They're both sort of centrist moderates on one sort or another. And so to try to use the filibuster for these circumstances means that the institution has been perverted and you're probably better off without it. So my advice to the Democrats, which they won't take, is think back to the Alito nomination. What you did in that case is you let the thing go to a vote on the merits, and then some of you voted against him, and he passed 58 to 42. Uh, that would not have gotten you past the filibuster. That's what they should do this time. You and I talked in a previous episode about Chevron deference, this legal principle where the courts will defer to administrative agencies in interpreting the rules that guide their conduct. It's obviously become an even bigger issue over the last few years because we've been seeing more and more policy being driven by the executive branch. The reason we talked about this before, Judge Gorsuch is by all accounts pretty hostile to Chevron, as are a lot of conservatives who worry about the administrative state. Justice Scalia, who he will be succeeding presumably, uh, wasn't. Can you break down the sort of intellectual cleavage there for our audience? Yeah, I think I can do so. Chevron is essentially the apotheosis of the modern administrative state. Uh, the statute that ostensibly it was construing was the Administrative Procedure Act of 1946, which was passed in the Republican reaction to the New Deal. Uh, the Republicans took huge numbers of seats in the Congress. They were obviously going very strong. And there was a real sense that administrative agencies had sort of gone too far too fast, even for a New Deal situation. And this statute was thought to be a retrenchment. One of the key features of that retrenchment was Section 706, which says that on all questions of law, uh, what happens is that you get a de novo review. The court treats it just as though it would treat any question of law when there was no administrative agency. When you got the Chevron uh, some 40 years later, uh, the wheels came off the bus. Justice Stevens didn't even bother to cite Section 706 to note that this was a notice and comment hearing. He just simply announced that the deference rule on questions of law would apply and then proceeded to say that the administrative statute in question was one that he was prepared to sustain. In a sense, this was an improvement because the lower court, in a decision by then Circuit Court Judge Ruth Bader Ginsburg struck down this perfectly sensible statute on the grounds that it didn't give enough, um, shall we say, benefit to or protection for various kinds of perceived environmental interests. And so Stevens was an improvement, but he should have read the statute, said, I'm going to try to figure out what it means. There may be some ambiguities in it. That's true of a lot of statutes. When there's no administrative agents, we do just fine. We're going to do it again and come up with it. So what happens is once you know you have Chevron there, 
it's no longer a judicial tool that saves the inadvertent decision. It now becomes essentially an essential part of the planning. So I can recall years ago when I represented some of the telephone companies and I went before the FCC and I said, you know, this order makes no sense given the statute. And their reply wasn't that we got it right. Their reply was, we've got Chevron. Meaning we may well be wrong, but with a straight face, we can tell the court that we're right and we're going to win. Well, that sets me against it for life because now you realize that Chevron is a strategic tool which allows an administrative agency to take a statute into territory beyond what the Congress would want. Justice Scalia um, was actually very bad on this in a couple of his key decisions, uh, one of them having to do with the federal authority to determine federal regulations, um, a case called Our Against Robin. What he said is, we're going to defer to them. And if you actually looked at what the regulation said and the way in which it was construed by the Department of Labor, it was quite clear that it was sheer madness. That is, there was no ambiguity there. They just made up difficulties because they wanted to make up difficulties. And then more lately, in a case involving the city of Arlington uh, in 2013, he kind of announces that an agency has scope to determine the reach of its own jurisdiction. And one of the things that people have always been worried about is that agencies will narrow their jurisdiction so as to deny relief to people who deserve it or expand it unduly so as to trap people who ought to be outside of it. So all rule of law types essentially say, look, when it comes to jurisdictional issues, you can't trust the guys who are running the hen house uh, and make them into foxes. You just have to please this more seriously. And now that you have a Trump administration, I would have thought that many Democrats who are willing to give Mr. Obama the run of the mill um, would be very reluctant to do so with President Trump. And I think they ought to apply the same thing. I am not a political type, as you know. I really am not. And so I've always been opposed to Chevron. I don't care whether it's a Democratic president or a Republican president. I care about the jurisdictional issues. I think that you have to get the procedures right. And that seems to be Gorsuch's opinion, because in his most famous Tenth Circuit decision, he says, there's something about Chevron, which is an abnegation of judicial duty to say what the law is. And I think that's correct. On matters of fact, you always have to give greater deference. You give them to agencies, you give them to juries. And I think that's perfectly okay. So my one sentence summary of administrative law is you put an expert agency in the place of a jury or a trial court. But otherwise, what you do is you treat the relationship between an appellate court and the original finders of fact or the truck judges at first instance in exactly the same way whether you're dealing with an administrative agency, a bench trial, or a jury trial. It's pretty simple-minded. Uh, you can argue with it on the details, but I think it gets you about 95% the way home. The last thing that I'll ask you today, a number of observers, including yourself, have referred approvingly to this conciliatory style that Judge Gorsuch has. And so much of the analysis of the Supreme Court just focuses on the scorecard, how many votes in this direction or, or that direction, that I think the human element of it probably sometimes gets elided. But how important is temperament in a Supreme Court justice? Well, I think it's extremely important in every setting in which they work. First of all, what it does is it can change the nature of oral argument. And if you have a judge who's willing to listen, people will start to give their best. And if it turns out he asks questions that attract attention, it might stop some of the showboating that sometimes takes place from other members of uh, the Supreme Court. Justice Scalia was from time a showboater. Justice Sotomayor often had that. We wish we could get Justice Thomas to talk once in a while. Uh, but I do think that he could improve the level of discourse. The other thing that's absolutely critical is the 
way in which the judges talk either in their meetings of the nine exclusive people or in the interchange between various offices. Sometimes it's justice to justice or justice plus clerks or clerks without justices. Somebody like um, Gorsuch is a person who opens up lines of communication. He listens to people. He knows how to talk to people. He's extremely smart, but he's not at all conceited or arrogant. Uh, that may bring a little bit more collegiality. And if you get more collegiality, uh, it may lead to a bit more compromise. I think the way in which I look at the world is as follows. As an academic, my job is to state first principles as forcefully as I can. I'm not in the business of compromising. If I think the Civil Rights Act of 1964 is unconstitutional, I would say so. And I have. But if you're a judge and you have to work within a given framework, your job is to make sure that the continuities of the law carry out so there aren't any unpleasant surprises or serious acrimonies amongst people. That's his temperament. Scalia was criticized in many cases for going exactly in the opposite direction. And I can certainly recall many of my own conversations with him, which had this somewhat unnerving quality. You would agree with what Nino said, and you wish he hadn't said it with quite the vehemence that he said it. And that's always a sign that everybody should know. If you make your allies uncomfortable in conversation, then it turns out you better change the ways in which you converse. I don't see Gorsuch doing that. I think he will be a very cohesive element on this. I don't regard him as out there on, quote, the extreme right wing. If I had to figure out where you would slot him in, I would say he would be somewhere between um, – probably a little bit more conservative than Kennedy and Roberts, uh, but a little bit more liberal uh, than either Scalia or Alito, sort of somewhere in that particular range. Uh, the United States Supreme Court could do far worse than him, and I think we should be grateful that a person of that particular excellence has been nominated by the president, and I wish it were being confirmed unanimously. The level of pettiness on the part of the Democrats is unparalleled in my life. I've never seen anything quite as shameful, and I really think that uh, they should rethink what they do uh, before they make, um, shall we say, a disgrace of their own behavior. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column. It's called The Libertarian by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.